Welcome one and all to the Steve Cummings episode of Sigma Sports Presents Me, Matt Stevens, Unplugged. Now, over the course of the next hour or so, you'll hear Steve telling me all about his collection of boss wipes, which are basically giant northern wet wipes on a roll. Well, I think they're wet wipes anyway. They could be dry. They might be just slightly damp. Anyway, he'll also give me an insight into why he's attracted to the tactical side of the cycling, which is absolutely fascinating. The random question generator, the RQG, as it will be known henceforth, deals him a random question with its flashing lights and a tear-off bit of paper at the bottom. It's essentially a giant fax machine from outer space, and he completes in the Pensby quiz which was a lot harder to research than I originally anticipated, as there's only three lines on Wikipedia. But there you go. Grab a brew, sit back, and enjoy the pod. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged by Sports. Steve Cummings had an impressive career as a rider, winning the Tour of Britain, the British National Road and Time Trial Championships, as well as a host of stage victories at the biggest races on the planet, like the Vuelta and the Tour de France. Now he's just beginning a new chapter in his career as a race planning tactician and director sportif for the Ineos Grenadiers. So it seemed like the perfect time to chat and maybe soak up some of his enthusiasm for the next chapter of his career. Check it out. Well, Steve, first and foremost, mate, thanks very much indeed, mate, for, for coming on um, on the podcast. Uh, how are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, all good. Um, first up, what we like to do is kind of set the scene a little bit, mate. Um, so I know where you are because you just told me before we came on air. But can you describe for the listeners, firstly, where in the world you are? And then secondly, describe the your immediate surroundings, i.e. the location that you're, you're in right now. All right. So uh, I've moved, I moved when I stopped. I moved back to the UK. So where I'm, you know, where I grew up. So the Wirral. Um, and uh, around about this time last year, maybe April last year, when when the first lockdown kicked in, I built a, a log cabin in my garden. It was like um, to put my bikes in, really. And it, uh, what is it, four by six meters? So it, was, it bought it like a kit. And we built that and then um, we've kind of, because of lockdown and stuff and working from home, we've made a section of it into like an office. So I, I work down here now, so it's, it's quite nice. So I'm at the bottom of the garden in a log cabin that we've decorated pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really good. So what's immediately around you? What what can you see? Is it like old jerseys or is it is there any reference to your past career or stuff or other weird stuff? Uh, I've got two pictures of Muhammad Ali. I've got uh, a Lego model that I got for Christmas. <laughs> what one is it? It was a VW camper. And uh, yeah, I spent pretty much all Christmas Day building that. And um, you know what? I'm not into that, that stuff really at all, but I was when I was a kid. And um, uh, I don't know. I loved it. I loved it. It took me back to my childhood, actually, Christmas Day. And then I've got a Swift system here set up. Um, I've got a few fans for when I'm sweating a lot. Uh, a big heater, computers. What else? Uh, yeah, my bikes here, and then out out the windows a treehouse that I built for my uh, daughter. <laughs> Trampoline. See, brilliant stuff, mate. You you <laughs> I do, you're quite a handyman, aren't you? By the sounds of it, you like to you don't like to. When I'm the complete opposite, and I could only just about put up a shelf. Yeah, uh, no. I, to be honest, I never did really anything, but. Um, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed since, since I've stopped, you know, getting the tools out. Like my uh, father-in-law is really good. 
he's got all the tools. And I think if you've got all the tools, you know, that helps. So I borrow his tools and then I've done some, yeah, some like really rewarding stuff. And um, it's just nice, you know, building a treehouse for your daughter is quite a nice thing to do, I think. So um, I've enjoyed it. been good. I, okay, mate. So let's just go back a little bit first. I mean, well, no, actually, no, let's, let's not go back too far because it's been such a weird year. Well, this, this year is weird, but I think there's light at the end of the tunnel for us all. But 2020 was such an exceptionally strange, difficult, challenging year for everybody. And it was the, your first year of retirement because obviously your last season as a bike racer was 2019. And, um, you know, we all talk about bike races retiring and then looking to the future, finding out what they're going to do. But I mean, and I obviously spoke to you at the start of the year and then we had, we went out on a bike ride middle of the year in, in between the two lockdowns. But what was last year like for you then, mate, in terms of, was it, did you, were you able to relax and focus on the future or did you, did you have any real firm plans? How, how, how did it go for you? Um, yeah, I think it's a mindset really. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's a, a little bit concerning, um, because all you're seeing is your savings going down. You know, I wasn't working. My wife was furloughed on, she had a, she had a, a contract that was like a, basically a week, a month, even though she'd been working more, but so, so she was furloughed. So she was getting like a day's pay a month. So that was the only money, money coming into the house. And then, Bloody hell. yeah, I wasn't working. We had savings. And you just think, Bloody hell, how long is this going to go on, on for? But we didn't have anything to complain about really. Um, yeah, everything was good. And we tried to make the most of our time, enjoy it, you know, bond bond i guess together um we did a lot of exercise walking outside and then yeah i was studying and then and took got a few little gigs of work which i think that's always the thing like when you stop you're like okay what am i going to do and and um i think i felt immediately better as well once i once i had a few little bits of work because i felt like okay there is some work out there but um it, it didn't feel good actually because I'm quite like you know from quite like a working class background if you like and um yeah to to not be doing anything it didn't really sit very I, I wasn't really comfortable in that space where I wasn't um but at the same time it was like okay what can I do so I didn't want to be like sort of harsh on myself and punish myself for not working but uh I was always looking for work and um I don't know um yeah, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate in the position I'm in now because I've found a really good a good job, you know. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about that later. I mean, I must admit, um, I mean, I, I didn't kind of know anything about it. Like most of us, most of us didn't until it was announced. And um, yeah, obviously going to be within your Grenadiers this season. Again, we will put that to one side and discuss that in a bit a bit more length, mate. But um, so you because you last year you did a little bit of filmmaking, didn't you? From what I could see, you made a few little videos. You did some. I remember talking to you in that friends ride we did with, with Adam and, and Niall and Stu Clapp and Bradley in the middle of the year, which was a lot of fun. You were talking about your plans there about and uh, kind of wondering still what to do a little bit. And I guess at that point, the Ineos job wasn't, was that on the horizon at that point or was that con- was that completely just um, something that you hadn't considered? Um, I didn't, I think what, it's crazy, really, because the only thing that's sure when you're racing is you're going to stop, you know. <laughs> and, and yeah, not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't make any plans for it, really. Um, I wanted to continue. I felt like I could still continue. Um, and, and I, well, to, to be fair, I was starting to make plans, but I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And um, um, I think one of the things that, I wanted to be proactive, so that's why I started to study and stuff like that. And then, I, then you, it, you start to find out like what you enjoy, and and um, 
yeah, we did some really cool stuff. I really enjoyed that ride. It's probably the best ride ever we did. <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun, wasn't it? It was a yeah, lot of fun. Yeah, we had a great crack. And um, yeah, I just realised like really what was important, what I loved, um, and then also what I was fascinated by, which was, um, I don't know, tactical elements in cycling, um, leadership, team cultures. You know, I've been in some different teams and um, experienced different cultures. And, and, and you know how how we can affect those cultures and how, how, yeah, that affects the rider on the bike and, and then also, also tactics and how we learn and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I was just fascinated by all that really. At what point, I mean, you said you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that you were studying and I know that you mentioned to me that you were looking at studying. Just explain what you've actually been studying. Um, so yeah, I started in 2000 and I think 18, 19, I can't remember exactly when. And, um, the course is business and sport management. Okay. So, like modules we've done on doing business ethics. It, it sounds business good. ethics. That's an interesting one. Yeah, at the moment I'm doing that, and but it's it's really interesting because it just gives you a broader perspective on um, on uh, cycling, really, on <laughs> just why some sometimes decisions are made. As a rider, you know you you're, you're so performance driven, so so goal driven it's hard to justify in your head sometimes why decisions are made and then if you when you've got a broader perspective perspective and you can see you can put yourself in like i don't know the team boss's chair and understand that he's got to balance so many different factors into his decision making Mm. it i don't know i guess that that helps um other stuff i've done is leadership i did something on race intelligence which was uh quite good that was like a, a proposal for like a final year um report what else have i done uh i've done stuff on marketing as well which is interesting um i never quite got my head around marketing <laughs> but uh, right. this is this has helped a lot yeah and uh yeah and then i took a, a like a postgrad course because i was like i said i was I, I was in limbo a little bit i was a bit bored at home and fe- felt like i wasn't working hard enough so i took this postgrad course which was managing management through coaching and mentoring and that's been like really steep learning curve that's like a level above um and i'm right. just sort of coming to the end of that now and then um what else uh yeah it's just all ongoing it's all ongoing project management stuff like that it's, it's interesting it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about that stuff and um i think the, the kind of sentence that i picked up on is like finding something that you're really into i mean yeah. and and let, and you've been, you're such a, a quiet, you know, gentle character, mate, obviously ferocious on the road, tactically astute. Um, but to hear you talk like that, I mean, because you, you've just been a bike racer, that's all you've been known for. And, and it's, I think it's fair to say that when you're interviewed, it's quite straightforward. You don't really open up too much. You just keep focusing on what you're doing. But now, you know, as you've matured, your bike racing's finished. You've now got you're almost starting from scratch again, aren't you? But you've got all this wealth of experience to draw on and also the hunger to learn even more as well. It, it, it certainly, it's by no means the end. I, I, I think it's the kind of beginning for you, mate, really. Yeah, no, exactly. I think um, there was a, I think there was when, when you stop, you know, I just wanted to do something different, really. I was like, oh, because of the studying, you realise like how sort of privileged you've been to have, have lived your dream in a way. And it, it, it makes mm. sense to sort of embrace that if you can. And, um, yeah, I am starting for, from scratch in terms of I've never like been in a management role or a coaching role or DS role or anything like that. So yeah, I'm starting from scratch, but I do feel like 
the experience I've had as a rider gives you um, an insight that perhaps other coaches and people who haven't raced for so long, they don't have that, you know. So it's, that's probably a strength. Um, but yeah, a weakness is that I am my experience of the other side, the management, the coaching and all that is, is limited. So if you like, that was why I'm putting all this sort of groundwork in, you know, so like, just think about it as training. You don't, I wouldn't start the season without preparing properly throughout the winter and you build that every year. So I, I guess it's the same, same way, you know, just trying to build, build, learn, learn to uh, do a better job. Fair enough, mate. I mean, we will again, we'll focus on the future in a, in a bit but what i'd like to do if it's okay with you and and generally what i ask all kind of pros and cyclists um actually everybody that comes on the pod is first memories of throwing your leg over a push bike whether it be a little bmx or a little shopper bike can you remember uh your first significant kind of little bike ride that you did um yeah i remember a few my dad he bought me uh we had a bike shop i don't know maybe a mile away so we walked across to the bike shop and um, mm. picked up a bike, which was like a red ML. <laughs> Do you know ML? Oh, yeah, I remember ML. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a red ML little mountain bike. And I, I, I love that bike, and I never really wanted to, you know, you get used to a bike. And I grew, uh, it was, by the time I'd finished with it, it was way too small, but I never wanted to get rid of the bike. I just felt good on the bike, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to stay on my ML. If I, if I had the choice, I'd probably still be on my ML. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, I loved it, and you couldn't keep me off the bike, and that was probably my first memories of, of the bike. I always wanted to go everywhere by bike and um, play on my bike and and just go around the block, Dad, and then you'd do a bigger loop than you were supposed to and all that. You know, it's always on the bike. Was, was your dad, I think, was your dad a racer? Um, he wasn't really a racer. He, he did ride a bike, um, like, socially, and I think he raced a little bit, but, uh, yeah. He, yeah, he used to ride to work and stuff like that. He's very um, fitness conscious. My dad, you know, he used to run yeah. to work, ride home, and um, my mum was running as well. My mum used to run marathon, you know. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you were surrounded by kind of that that kind of um, I don't know way of thinking, and not not so much an ideology, but just a, a kind of outdoor way of life. When you were young, you were kind of bored into that and just liked going out and exploring. Yeah, yeah, no, I had a really good childhood like that. We were always outside and, um, yeah, we used to go on walks and on on bike rides and, yeah, really good, really good. <laughs> and I, a couple, the, the next step then, um, you obviously joined a local club, which, you know, uh, most of us did in the in, in the UK when we, when we were young. Um, and I remember commentating on, on a bike race a while ago, a few, maybe five or six years ago that you were in, and I actually said on air, the wrong club that you rode for and I got so much you know crap for it on on Twitter and stuff so so what can you just definitively say what what club you joined when you were a kid uh Beckham at North End yeah so no they, they were great oh yeah I went down to the club room and um yeah. I think there was a problem with because I was kind of young and there was a problem with uh insurance so then my dad had to join but my dad didn't have time because you know got two of the brothers he didn't have time to go out the weekend and with yeah. work and stuff so um they sort of he was supposed to come out, but what they did is he joined and then one of the other members said, look, I'll take care of him and make sure he's all right. So that enabled me to go. And then somebody lent me a bike because I, I only had a mountain bike at the time. And then um, 
yeah, used to, that's how I got got going. And yeah, all my kit, you know, it was pe- from old members, you know, like old members. I had, I had it's like uh, these tights that were, um, I don't know how you describe them, like uh, <laughs> almost like woolly tights, I suppose. But they were all right, but if you got wet, it was big trouble, you know. But... <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, mate, it, it's such a, you know, the club scene is so. And I, people would say, Matt, stop talking about the club scene. But it's so important, isn't it? You know, the way that you can come in and yeah. be looked after. And back then, you know, if you do come from a, you know, a working class background or whatever, even not, you generally, there wasn't, people didn't have as much back then, did they? Even like 10, 15, 20 years ago, people didn't, didn't have quite as much. And um, when you got a, a new bit of kit, it was amazing. But even if you got a secondhand bit of kit, you were remarkably grateful, weren't you? Even if it was maybe a little bit shite. I mean, you just... <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, the clubs are great, aren't they? I mean, I don't know where... We need those clubs and they're just um, amazing. And um, yeah, it's just nice. I still see members now. I still keep in touch with members. And um, I don't know, really, really good. They always want to help each other and... It's a bit tricky at the minute because you know you're limited to riding in groups and stuff. But yeah. you know, luckily now we got like the group chats and all that. Back in the day, it was uh, just a club room on a Thursday with a little cup of tea. <laughs> but, but yeah, you got the WhatsApp group, which kind of keeps the fire going, which is good. So um, ah, it's a great. It is a cracking scene around here, and not just here. I'm sure up and down the country, everywhere. There's and these these members, you know, they just follow characters in these clubs. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've got fond memories of my club, Hemel Hempstead. And actually, I did, when I when I joined North Wirral Vela, when I lived up in in Crewe, um, I did ride up the Wirral quite quite a lot, and a lot, lot of our rides were up there. I used to. What's the What's the famous calf on the Wirral? I can't remember that everybody used to go to. Two mills, two mills. Yeah. yeah, is that still open, Steve? Because I've yeah, obviously yeah, been. Around... Yeah, still open. Yeah, yeah. You, do you still go down there? So when you can, I mean, obviously when it was when it's opened. I must admit, I kind of stopped going because I um, used to get mobbed. I used to, yeah, like a quiet cup of tea, and you'd end up <laughs> <laughs> someone would be analysing your last race for you, you know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, one of these members, you know. So, uh, yeah, I used to get when I was in a good good mood and and uh, ready to have a bit of a laugh. I'd go there and listen to the analysts and stuff like that, but. <laughs> Yeah, like well, it- cracking characters. I just remember it when I was a kid, really, sort of 13, 14, and uh, everyone had a nickname, you know, and uh, just, just <laughs> funny, funny. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you didn't really call people by their normal names. Every- Seriously, thinking back, yeah, everybody had a weird kind of nickname. And and because there was no in, like no internet and something, it was basically what you used to read in Cycling Weekly. And you'd be like, yeah, giving everybody your best 10 times, the reason why you could have gone a bit quicker in the club 10, all that sort of stuff, wasn't it, mate? That, that was the chat. And, um, yeah, but, yeah, oh, some God. crappy excuses. And, yeah, it's just funny, funny characters, funny, funny people, you know, that, that band's, uh, yeah, really good. Brilliant stuff. I mean, and so, so what, what point then, Steve? I mean, I remember coming across you at the uh, Eddie Sowens Handicap uh, back in the early noughties. Um, and, um, I, d- I can't remember if I actually raced it or not. It might be one of the ones that I missed, but I think it was a rubbishy day, and you ended up lapping. Well, you ended up winning, didn't you, as a junior, the Eddie yeah. Sowens, didn't you? And it was the first junior, I think, to ever have won it. Um, so I guess at that point, did you have – obviously, you're aware of your talent, I'd imagine, but did you have any kind of inklings that you might want to pursue, you know, a life of as a professional cyclist back then? <laughs> no way. It was, it was very different, wasn't it? You know, you think back yeah. – um, 
I think profession, British professional cyclists were like an, an exception to the rule, really. Like whereas now, you know, there's a clear, there's so many, so many success stories. But then it was like there was there's only a few. So I didn't, I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't, yeah, I wouldn't really allow myself to dream like that. I was just, I don't know. I guess I was just enjoying it, enjoying the club scene, enjoying the, yeah, going the track league and stuff like that. Just enjoying it and. um and uh, then I was with Keith Boardman and, you know, so uh, that he yeah. gave me, I guess he helped me um, start like goal setting, if you like, and um, yeah. training towards those and the steps towards those goals. But it was always fun. And um, and there was always a day or two days a week where we'd just enjoy the bike and ride with the club and didn't think about training. But, um yeah. No, I didn't think about professional being a professional when I was uh, one of the Eddie Sevens. Definitely not. <laughs> no, no, I just I know because I know um, some. I, I guess now, I guess you're quite right because back then there was no clear path, and there was there seemed first and foremost, you know, we're an island, so there's that kind of gap. That kind of the English Channel almost seemed like a cultural gulf, didn't it? You know, yeah. between riding on the mainland and um, and there was only a, even even back in the early noughties, still a handful of pros, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, I mean, Charlie Wagalius, Jeremy Hunt, uh, Dave Miller. Blimey, there wasn't even, there wasn't many more. Uh, obviously, uh, or Chris had just retired, didn't he? So mm-hmm. there wasn't many pros at all, was there? No, no. You used to like look at the um, prize lists and stuff like that, and try and find out where the biggest prizes was and, and go go there. You know, and if you won, I don't know, in the sewings that there was uh, preems. You know, you 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 won a box of like um, they were called boss wipes. They were like. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when it's yeah 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 they were like industrial <laughs> like baby wipes to clean your your bike and stuff with that oh man hit me not all in the car because I won all the premiums <laughs> and uh, box wipes for life I still got some now to go honestly if anybody doesn't know a lot of you will be fully conversant of what a boss a boss wipes are isn't it. Um, <laughs> for some reason there used to be a prize at a lot of races especially in the northwest and and although you might think winning some like wet tissue paper as a prize is is rubbish actually back then it was like whoa this is so cool and it is they were like regularly for years given as prizes up in the northwest weren't they it was all that yeah and then you used to trade them then in the club room for a pair of socks or something like that (laughs) And you just couldn't believe it. You know, you know, you were like winning every which way you were winning it because it. I don't know. It was, it was, it was a passion. Like you, I love riding my bike. I love the freedom and the banter. And then yeah. I was able to go to a race and, and win something. And it was always, I always had good fun because we'd go with a group of us. Um, that was just like a bonus. So that, that yeah. was how it was. <laughs> I th- uh, yeah, I, I, it's a really, really important point because we, you know, let's be honest, we haven't even discussed your, you know, sixteen-year career, but. The formative years um, of riding a bike, uh, when you kind of basically fall in love with it, are, are really, really important. And the more you kind of think back, the more, and I do, the more I think back to kind of the years of riding and, you know, when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, were just, it was just fun. I, there was a lot of suffering, but generally, all I remember is just laughing with my mates out on bike rides. And, and yeah. it was just, what a wonderful way to start. No, no, exactly, exactly. And then, you know, I think because of that, when you get, when when there's bad times, you realise that, hang on a minute, I'm just going to ride my bike. And that's what gets you through, you know, that you go, yeah. you revert back to doing what you always do, which is the love of the bike. And uh, mm. and that's what kind of always got me through, I, I think. I mean, obviously, we t- talked about uh, Keith Borben. It was obviously 
people listening, that's Chris's dad, isn't it? Um, yeah. Chris yeah. Boardman's dad, just to add a little bit of context there. But then, obviously then, Steve, things started picking up. You won that. I remember it being, you know, there's a picture in Cycling Weekly and everybody's thinking, oh, this is, you know, it's the new whoever. Um, and then, obviously, you first, you you rode really well on the track. You, you got, um, you medaled at the Olympic Games and the Team Pursuit. And then your first year as a professional was with the second division Belgian team, wasn't it? Lambeau credit, Colnago. You were there for two years. Um, just briefly tell us how that came about and just give us a little bit of a flavour of what it was like being in a Belgian team. You talked about all the different teams you've been with and that that was a proper hardcore, top-end kind of Kermes, some of the classics kind of team. It wasn't the biggest team, but it was a, it was a pretty good one, wasn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. And my first, uh, tr- so my first training camp, we went to... Um, Italy and um, the coaster, you know, um, where Tirreno often starts, just a bit further south, so like where the second stage is around is like San Vincenzo around there. Yeah. And uh, my first roommate was um, Ludo Dirksons, and I was like a big fan of Ludo Dirksons, you know, he's like this. Uh, he's a legend, good, wouldn't he? Yeah, good in the classics, and he sort of turned pro late, and um, he was a factory worker, and um, yeah, he's just always in the breakaway and stuff like that. And he had the Belgium national champs jersey one year in the tour. And I just, I was like in awe of this guy. And he was my yeah. first roommate. And uh, no, I mean, the team was like, it it wasn't, they had a small budget. And because of that, um, things weren't very well organised, if organised at all. And, okay. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was an opportunity, you know, to, yeah. um, to do all these races, these fantastic races. They had a good race programme and they had to... They, yeah, it was, it was still had that feeling of of it was fun because um, <laughs> we'd laugh a lot, you know. It was always something funny, and you you had no choice. You had to because of, because of the budget, because they didn't have the budget to organise things properly. Uh, it had to be you had to laugh because if you didn't, you'd sort of cry and get. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's just just good fun, and um, yeah, it was it was a uh, it was a really great opportunity and a good platform for me to try and learn and, and, and move up from i loved it there and you were there with paul manning was it two years with paul or was it just one year with paul because you both went didn't you yeah um i don't think paul was there when i was there i think he i left and he came and then ed ah. came and stanard as well so i think i right. was there alone um and i'd stay sometimes with uh for a period of like to so go over for like six weeks and stay with one of the ds's jeff right, DeBilder. Okay. Right, okay. And, uh, he was one of the sponsors. Um, he's like, his name was Jeff DeBuilder, but he was in the building. He was <laughs> in the building next <laughs> Jeff DeBuilder, that's a brilliant name, isn't it? They had all, you know, like all these little sponsors. They were great. They were like Ostender Benny, which is like a restaurant. <laughs> Ostender socks and all that. And uh, it's just good. It's just good. And we'd go everywhere in the camper and um, – yeah, there was no real flying, and often we'd have like long trips, and we'd have to rotate because the camper wasn't big enough for all the riders. So we'd spend, I don't know, we work it out, and you'd you'd rotate where you sit. <laughs> <laughs> oh mate, oh, and we had some God. epic trips. Like we went to Algarve in the camper, you know. <laughs> from so you you drove from Belgium to the because I'm looking at your race program back then, mate, and it was your first race in February was Volta Algarve. Yeah, that's a long that's a long way from Belgium, isn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah, well, to be honest, what I used to try and do was um, try to organise the logistics myself, which was okay, but it was tricky because they didn't have the the amount of vehicles and stuff they'd need to shoot to an airport. So sometimes it it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. And um, 
But yeah, it was fun. We had some great trips to go down to Germany to do like Reggio Tour and the camper and yeah, some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I remember like, you know, post race was like two slices of bread and uh, a slice of cheese and a slice of ham, you know, and you just think what. <laughs> And I used to take like uh, SIS shakes, and they were all like, "Oh, what is this? What is this?" And uh, (laughs) (laughs) you'd love it, Matt. It'd be perfect. Oh, brilliant! I mean, the thing is, back then, you know, it's 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 a bit of a paradox here, isn't there? Because when you think about, and 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 really, even back, you know, in the nineties and the early noughties, it was still kind of like you know, like Chris. Bourbon had a big influence in the, t- the cover brands that you kind of work for and British cycling were kind of on, on the up. Mm. And although we didn't have a lot of pros, in terms of understanding training, nutrition, physiology, as a nation, we we're probably way ahead of everybody else. So when you kind of did that sort of stuff and you're in a foreign team, it was almost like witchcraft or you'd been the first person to discover fire. It was really... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, exactly. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, it was like a real uh, shock to the system how, at that time, how far British cycling and stuff, that they, they were probably ahead of um, other other nations. But, um, yeah, it was funny. I'm trying to think some other stuff to tell you but <laughs> so many stories I, I, I tell you what if, if anybody is uh, thinking about random oh. question alert random question alert random question alert it is time for a random question oh no blimey uh, Steve sorry mate we've just had the the random uh, the, the random question klaxon uh, sound uh, sorry to interrupt the pod there mate it basically means that that our supercomputer that has been installed in my house um, using social distancing rules. Uh, the big flashing lights just uh, gone off. I've just torn off uh, a question um, at, at the bottom of it. And um, I'm going to read it now to you. So sorry about that. It's something that we have to do. Uh, I'm contractually obliged. Okay, Steve, it's a question randomly generated. I've never seen it. The computer's thought of it. Um, okay, here we go. Steve, if you could race for any cycling team, past or present, which one would you ride for? I like the lot, Fasa Bartolo. Okay, okay. Why? I like Giancarlo Ferretti. <laughs> I okay. like. Uh, I don't know. I like the, all the riders. I like the way they raced. They kind of look cool. And nice equipment, Pinarellos. It was very Italian flavor. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just like the team, and uh, also the. the they were pretty successful. They won a lot. They did. I actually, to be fair, I think. I mean, when I rode when I rode my only Grand Tour the, back in two thousand, they were riding, and they were obviously was racing with the faster Borslow guys that year. And uh, they were they had probably one of the best lineups alongside Mapai in that. But mm. they were the shiniest team as well. Everything like because I mean. Not many people can get away with pretty much just white kit, can they? <laughs> but but they did, didn't they? Yeah. Um, they had white kit, and they were back then, mate. They were one of the only teams to have a pro- well. There's a few teams, but one of the only teams to have a full on uh, team bus. And I remember looking at the team bus because we just had a camper and being amazed at how sp- sort of space age the wing mirrors looked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's just a cool team, on it? Like Pataki and Pinarello, and there's other teams as well. Like MG was a cool team. Um, 
I don't know, CSC. When I was with Lambo Credit, I used to look at CSC and I used to think, bloody hell, I'd love a pair of those zip wheels. <laughs> <laughs> we had some terrible wheels. That was what we used to do as well. You know, um, our wheels weren't so, so good. I, I'm not sure. I think they, the company might have gone bust now, but um, sometimes before the start of a race, you go to neutral service and change, change the wheels, say you got flat just before you start racing, so you get better Mavics, you know? <laughs> A tactical puncher or non-existent punch, just pull off to the side road, let the air out, and then get a nicer wheel. That's a good way of looking at it. I remember the brakes were in the quick step. Where they were in the brake as well, and they had a flat. And um, Actually, this might have been with Barlow World, and we didn't have a, I didn't have a car behind, so Wilfred Peter stopped and gave me a wheel. <laughs> I couldn't believe the difference in this wheel between that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Bloody hell. No, no, they very, very cool looking team. So, yeah, if anybody's thinking fastball, so look them up on the web. And also, please do look up Ludo Dirksons as well. Because, am I correct? Did he ever win a stage of the tour? I think he might have done. Yeah, I'm not um, sure. I'm not sure. But he was, all, he was always in the early breaks and stuff and did some epic solo moves that a lot of them were doomed to failure. But he was a proper hard man, wasn't he? Um, yeah. I think uh, and he, the story behind him as well, you know, he's he been working in a factory and he, he'd been racing for passion and he's like in his late 20s and he'd just been doing commesses and the factory work and then he turned pro, I don't know if he was 32 when he turned pro or something like that and then um, he had a really successful pro career then. Yeah, he did. He won a stage of the tour in 1999, yeah, actually. Yeah. Nice, um, really nice guy. Yeah, he, he was a proper, like a forgotten hard man of the sport. Um, and he rode primarily, well, actually, he rode for smaller teams, and then he rode for Lamprey for a bit, didn't he? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Kind of world tour team. But, uh, yeah, he retired in 2005, just shortly after being your roommate, um, Steve. Maybe that was a lovely a lovely end to his career. <laughs> no, I okay. Keep, I still keep in touch with him a little bit loosely. Do you? Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. That's that's right, that's because he's, he's um, one of the few ex-cyclists that is, is actually slightly older than me, which is pretty amazing. 56 years of age is, is Ludo. But look him up, and there's some epic pictures. And he did he did have a bit of a presence on a bike as well. He was one of those kind of proper Belgian. If you if you want a kind of Flandrian or a Belgian hard man, um, look him up, um, just so you can put in, in context um, what it was like. So actually, Steve, a quick question for you, mate. Um, and I'm just going to get up some stats here. If you could... You started off your career with Lambo Credit and ended it, as we know, with Team Dimension Data 2019. So six teams you rode for. If we went through the, all the teams, could you sum up each team with one word for me? You're if I just you're going to get me in trouble here, mate. Oh no, 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 no. Or maybe two, <laughs> three words is too complicated. No, I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to be controversial, but just think laterally, Stephen, and take your time. You know, there's no oh, yeah. rush. Uh, so uh, let's start off then. Okay, um, in one word, Steve, sum up Lambeau Credit Colnago. Traditional. Good answer. Um, discovery in 2007. Um, one word. Probably like the best. That's two words, I know, but best. Can we say best? <laughs> best. That's fine, mate. Best. Okay. Uh, uh, Barlow World. Italian. Italian. Very good. Oh, nice. Okay. Sky. Marginal. Mar- <laughs> Marginal. 
you know that's a corker. Uh, but, okay, BMC. <laughs> American. Oh, mate. Okay, American. As Bradley, um, you can't, you... Say, as Bradley used to say, American downhill team. <laughs> uh, you, actually, we can we'll keep that in. American downhill team. I like that. Uh, I'm not allowing you to say, when it first I'm, came about, that's kind of how it was. You know, they had a lot of random riders. Like people won't remember it like that, but when it was as it was developing, it was kind of a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Uh, and I'm not allowing you to say just South African for MTN. By the way, MTN. Um, I'm gonna say lovely. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. a real mix. So hopefully Niall, um, our producer, has written them all down. We'll try and formulate a sentence at the end of this with all those words. But uh, that was quite nice. Uh, uh, lovely. Because, yeah, I mean, it was – and let's be honest with you, you had some corking rides throughout your career. Um, yeah. But you really did mature like a like the old cliche, like a, like a fine red wine towards the back end <laughs> of your career, mate. And actually, that leads us nicely in, actually, to your most successful year – uh, just in terms of wins and the quality of the wins was 2016 um, when you won, you know, a stage of Torino, stage of Basque Country, Tour de France, Tour of Britain, and there's another one in there somewhere as well. Can you, looking back, can you pinpoint, Steve, how, why you thought, or why that year was so successful for you? Just think I didn't have, there's a few things. I think the first thing I had momentum, so I'd come for, for a period of time without injury or illness, um, mm. like freedom. And, um, yeah, I think I was disciplined enough to, um, earn that freedom if you like, and express that freedom on the road. So I think that was it really consistency. Yeah. So you came into from 2015 into the 2016 season cause you won very early and, and pretty much actually apart from the tour stage win, I was privileged enough to commentate um alongside with Carlton and, and Rob on all of your victories actually, which was wonderful. Um and you hit the ground running, didn't you, in Terreno, which was your first race that year. It was quite yeah. late to start, wasn't it? And stage four you won. But it was a combination of uh, clearly and, and this is I think what you're gonna bring to Ineos, and we will come to that question in a bit. It's not just your ability, your strength, you know, and your kind of but the tactical prowess was it was the first time we really, really sure saw that the tactical side as well. And stage and stage four of, of the Terreno was a great example of that, wasn't it? Um, yeah, because we were trying to do the stage for Edvold, really. Um, and yeah, you've got to make quick decisions. I think there was around thirty k to go. It was kind of downhill, and um, there was me and another teammate, Natu, and then we had Edvold. So it was, I don't know, let's say after the downhill was 15, 20k to go, it wasn't enough for, it wasn't, it it was too long for us to sort of sit on the front and just pull. So we had to almost be like policemen. Yeah. Which I thought was like a better strategy. And um, yeah, we took, we took advantage of that. And that's, I was a policeman. And if you watch the, I sort of rode, we rode on the downhill. We took it on on downhill because, there was no benefit of being in the wheel and almost you could do some damage on the downhill as often you can in Italy. Mm. Um, put people on the back foot on the downhill. And then when we came out of the bottom of the downhill, it was kind of a, a biggish road and there's jumping around. It's just trying to follow the right combinations based on who was there and what other teams wanted and taking all those factors and, and being sort of wise of who, who you would follow and why. And then, um, 
also just being calm, just saying, um, I'm not here to pull. I'm, <laughs> I've got Edvold behind, I'm not going to pull. And, and then eventually, um, once we got within a certain distance of the finish, I thought, well, they're going to give, they're giving me this victory on a plate, if you like, really. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's just, just that. Yeah. Just, uh, but um, I remember after they were a little bit, there's some talk, the bus, the DS was not super happy because he'd said the stage was for Ed. He was happy he had won, but he said the stage was for Edfall. But then when he watched the, the video back, he was like, well, yes, perfect. So um, it was all good. Yeah. it's a, it's. I remember kind of the, for the other riders having a go at you, um, as they do. I mean, the, the, but it, it's great in a situation like that where you basically have no obligation to ride. If you'd have ridden, yeah. you would have been a bit foolish. But they kind of... Yeah, when you, when you look, it's a funny one, but the, I, I like the fact that when you're employing tactics like that, it's not you just don't have the upper hand. What you do, you start to make the other riders panic and, and get them flustered, don't you? Which is really, really good. Yeah, just just stay calm and just there's 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 so many ways to win a bike race other than just pulling on the front, and um, and that was an example of of that really. It was it was exciting to watch, and that that season really did. It, you just couldn't stop winning, really. I mean, for a rider, I mean, for a non-sprinter to come off the back of a, a season like that with four World Tour wins and the overall on the Tour of Britain, it must have been immensely satisfying, mate. Yeah, I think so because, like you say, on you, you associate there's quite a high number of World Tour wins, and you associate that with sprinters or GC riders, and um, and um, there's not many riders in between who who yeah, who can win that many races. So, yeah, it was, it was great, really, yeah. I mean, what I'd like to – I know you've, you've probably done it a million times, mate, but um, I, I would like to hear just the last kind of few Ks of the stage you won in the Tour as well to Mende. It was your first – obviously, it was on Mandela Day, riding for a South African team. Um, you're away with a few hitters in that break. It's a big, big break, wasn't it? Stage 14 it was. Um, mm. I would imagine it's etched in your memory, mate. But um, – you had the whole of uh, Great Britain behind you and South Africa, I'd imagine. But going at the last few Ks, mate, um, when you were just getting distance on that steep climb, it's a horrible little climb, isn't it, as well, that one? Um, I've, I've ridden it myself. But just tell us, just describe the last few Ks for us and, and what was going through your mind and how you played it. Yeah, so like you say, this, the climb up to Mond is quite uh, steep. I'm not sure, is it a 3K and maybe is it, I don't know, I don't know what to say, 7 8%. Don't know something like that, yeah. But then you look at it, like there's Bardet, there's Pino, there's uh, Simon Yates, and there's Uran there. They're all bloody GC right? and uh, there's me <laughs> with my seventy-four kilo frame. And you're thinking, okay, how can I win? And to be honest, I was just like, don't think about winning. Just think about getting from the bottom of the of the climb to the top of the climb as fast as possible. In effect, I just did a time trial, but within that, I tried to use the group like draft from the group but really there's only the bottom of the climb you can draft because after that it gets so steep and, and drafting's lesser thing so just a time trial really i started at the back yep <laughs> drafted the group when i thought it was beneficial and let the group go when i thought well i can't ride 600 watts or 700 watts for whatever it was five minutes whatever i just have to set my own tempo and then one by one i started to pick them off and uh I remember being like fifth on the road and sort of coming up to Uran. I sort of looked at him and I was still quite calm. And he looked like, uh, <laughs> like all panicking, you know, and just <laughs> terrible on the bike, like you're just blown or something. And um, 
I thought, oh, this is all right. This is pretty good. And um, I can't remember who was next, maybe Simon Yates or whatever. And then, um, and then towards the top, I, you can sort of see the top. And uh, I saw Pino. I couldn't really, see, I could see Bardet in the distance. By this time, I was like third on the road. And, uh, yeah. And I knew like the last K, K and a half was downhill quite fast. So I just wanted to finish at the top of the climb. It was something I'd done in training and a lot like um, with right real momentum. So really time that, you know, you go into the red and at that point where you go into the red, you could sort of blow and you stop. But I wanted to time that perfectly. So I crested that and I blew as soon as the mo- I had the momentum, you know, so the speed was all there. And, and when I blew, I could recover at high speed. So that was the tactic. Right. And then, um, yeah, they fanned out. And uh, I was coming fast, fast, and I couldn't really believe it, to be honest. Like, a, it, was, it was a bit of a wow moment. And I tried to yeah. go straight past, but I had to feather the brakes because because they fanned out and they, they got in my wheel. And then I remember I checked behind me and um, what's his name? Pino. Pino was in the wheel. And um, mm. I knew, yeah, he, he wasn't super, he wasn't the best descender and he wasn't, the best a little bit cautious you know and um i yeah. just tried to take advantage of that in the corners really like every well a lot of people know that finish because you do it in Paris nice or other races so i knew the finish knew the airstrip knew the chicane and just tried to do the corners as fast as possible and if, each time i went around the corner um i just sort of take a little glance just to see where his wheel was and you know you could see he was kind of getting further and further back and then I, yeah because like I had a good position on the bike, aero position, and from the track and all that, I just tried to floor it. And as out the last corner, and still sort of checking underneath my arms to see if they were there. And then once, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just a moment that it was something you've been waiting for for so long. And uh, I would think, yeah, it would have been easy to mess it up. I was just trying to think about the process and and winning. But to be honest, in that situation, once I'd caught them. I could have won in a sprint as well, but um, it's better if you win alone, I think. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate that it happened. <laughs> it, it was it was magnificent. I mean, it's not just. I think it was just the way you, like you say, it's been it's been discussed and will continue to be discussing for years to come. It's obviously a very special moment in your career, and and because you're aware on your own, um, I, I guess you you could properly savor just the last kind of seventy five meters or so, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. It was it was a weird one that yeah. Um, I, I was able to relax. I don't know, let's say a hundred meters before the line, and um, it's so so emotional, so so emotional because um, yeah, on the bike I was kind of like killer, you know. I'm like on, in a zone, and you don't. I'm not thinking about any external things. I'm just thinking about the race and how and the the riders and and, and all of the process of the technical aspects of the race. And then in those hundred meters, when you know you've won, it all everything comes at you like the emotion and. Um, yeah, it's overwhelming. Brilliant stuff, mate. Brilliant stuff. Well, that's a nice point, a point to just kind of pause the pod um, because, I mean, it's well because I think it's time to kind of look forwards a little bit as well now um, about where you are now and obviously this opportunity with, with Ineos. But first, before we do that, um, there's a relatively new feature we have on uh, the podcast and it's, well, it's basically a quiz on your hometown. So I believe we might have a little jingle prepared because it's time now, Steve, for the Pensby quiz. <laughs> the Pensby quiz. The, the, the Pensby quiz. 
now it's time. Turn up and speak with. <laughs> Firstly, <laughs> it's like something off Ali G. This. <laughs> <laughs> Got to admit, I mean that. I mean uh, Niall, our producer. He, that, I think it's his favourite bit of work that he does each week. Is doing is doing the jingle. <laughs> did I hear a bit of drum and bass in there? <laughs> you certainly did. There was de- it's full of drum and bass. Yeah, no, no. there we go. <laughs> so uh, we're going to do the Pensby quiz, and just to set a little bit of context, um, you were brought up in the village of Pensby, weren't you, Steve, on the Wirral? Yeah. Which in the UK, for any of our international listeners, um, it's not too far from. It's in the northwest of uh, of England, kind of just to the east of North Wales and just to the west of Liverpool. Kind of, it's like a little peninsula that goes out um, where he lives, the village of Pensby. So, I've got three questions for you here, and I'm going to be honest with you, Steve, that the amount of information I could find out about Pensby was very limited. <laughs> so- <laughs> I don't know anything about Pensby, to be honest. Well, there we go. You'll be very glad to hear. I'm not going to try and uh, do your legs. It's multiple choice. So, you know, there's going to be no dead air. You you do have a choice here, okay? But so I'm going to be honest. The question's a a little bit ropey. But here we go. Okay. Question number one on the Pensby quiz. Steve, the first census, for want of a better word, in Pensby was carried out in 1801. Uh, and the recorded population was what? So first first census in Pensby, 1801, um, was the population A, 22 people, B, 32 people, or C, 42 people? So 1801, B. Pensby, in its infancy, how many people live there? I'd say B. Oh, mate, it was A, it was only 22 people. Really? Oh, no, oh, sorry about that, Steve. Sorry. So, not not a bad start. You're only what? You're only ten out, um, rather than twenty. Okay, <laughs> right. Ten out, and it for <laughs> whatever. I can't. Yeah, something like that. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Get, get your thinking cap on, mate. This is uh, question number two. What was the name of the only pub in Pensby until it was raided by the police in a drugs bust in 2013? <laughs> okay. Was it a the Lion Hotel? Was it B, the Eagle and Child Hotel, or was it C, the Pensby Hotel? Yeah, it was Pensby the Pen. That's right. <laughs> Correct, Amundo. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Massive weed thing going on. Upstairs. That's right. Yeah, it was It was raided uh, in a half a million pounds uh, cannabis raid. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever go to the Pen? Do you know what? I never... Yeah, no, I'll lie. I did go in the pen a few times, yeah, but um, I wasn't aware they were doing weed upstairs, but... There we go. Yeah, no, my dad always said, don't go to the pen. It's no good, you know, so we used to go more in Heswell if we wanted a pen. Fair enough, though. Fair enough. Okay, mate. Um, okay, final question. So, well done. You got um, yeah, one right from two. Um, question number three. What are the colours of Pensby Football Club? Okay, is it A, green shirts black shorts, yellow socks? Was it B, yellow shirts, black shorts, yellow socks? Or is it C, black shirts, green shorts, yellow socks? <laughs> I think I think it's A. I think it's green. Do you want another guess? No. Okay. Uh, it's B. It's not. It's it's yellow shirts, black shorts, and yellow socks, not green shirts, black shorts. Are you sure you got that right? That sounds like Heswell to me. Oh, God. I better go up. 
<laughs> Let me check on Wikipedia. <laughs> Just hold on a minute. Okay, Pensby Football Club. Um, the club we're playing at Pensby High School with yellow shirts. Yeah, it is yellow shirts, uh, black shorts, and yellow socks. Oh, and they've the club have agreed a sponsorship deal with the Exchange Bar in Heswell. Really? I, I yeah. remember. I thought we played in green when I was there. Maybe they changed. They might have changed, mate. I mean, um, yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe do some digging, mate. We'll have you back on the podcast in a year's time. We can bring back some more information for us, or maybe go and watch him play this weekend. I was pretty, co- I was pretty confident of that one. To be honest. You were, because I offered you a different choice, yeah, and you were yeah. like steadfast in your reply, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. That was the Pensby quiz, and he got thirty-three point three percent reoccurring. So, well done. <laughs> Oh, mate, that took me all of two and a half minutes to research Pensby. I tell you. <laughs> I still think you messed it up, Matt. <laughs> oh, God. Right. Moving on, mate. Moving on. Um, okay. To kind of like like now, really. Um, but just before we get to um, you go, going back to what was Sky and Ineos, at, at what point, Steve, um, I know you've always been – somebody who is um, fully aware of, of you know, conservation of effort, basically, and being the most efficient on a bike, as well as the tactical prowess. But at what point in your career, because let, let's be honest, you started back into, well, you know, you're riding the track in, in the early, early, uh, early zeros, and obviously massive focused on aero gains, marginal gains, even then. But at what point on the road did you understand the real fundamental importance of being efficient and start to really look at your position on a bike and how you could save energy and then use your your power to weight to the, to its utmost advantage. Um. Well, I probably realised straight away, but I think you spend a few years trying to find out like what your limitations are. You 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 perhaps I, I don't know. You start out kind of open. You think, ah, oh, you know, why not dream of of winning? Um, the Tour de France, let's say, but I wasn't good enough. <laughs> so, so then it's like, okay, how can I win? Because I, I was very motivated. Probably, actually, the next step I went to was like, how can I support someone else? Trying to help someone support someone else win a race, and um, I, I don't didn't think that belt brought the best out of me. So then I went to like, okay, so what do I need? I want to really win, and that was what I really wanted to do. And then it was like, okay, what do I need? And and I think it was around then, but it is a number of factors. Like you know. You know you've got to be aero from an early age, but uh, yeah. it's also having the budget and the time and the equipment and the support to do all that. So um, I think I properly went through those steps. Um, I was, uh, I don't know, probably uh, 2000 and, 2010. Well, no, okay. even, before, even before that, I was... Um, I always used to struggle to fit on a bike, if I'm honest, because maybe right. my position was a bit ra- radical. And may- I don't know, I've got kind of a, like a, long, a longer upper body, if you like. And um, yeah, I always I always tried to have to, yeah, somehow, I don't know, you always saw me with like 15 centimetre stems, minus 17 and all this kind of stuff to try and make the bike. So um, like Discovery, I was never really happy with my position, but you're not really in a position, in a position in terms of where you sit in the team to say oh, i need this or i need that you know you just sort of make do with what yeah. they have because you want to you don't want to be seen to be an awkward and you have to look at it from their perspective like you're not going to make any difference so uh 
I reckon I got it. I was getting it right by two, two ten by two, fourteen, thirteen, twelve. Yeah, when I was when I was pretty cool. I looked good then. I went to Mape. Yeah, around then. Yeah. And and who did you? It's really interesting that there's there's a clear evolution there. I mean, that's something that all riders do, isn't it? But I think you know when you look at your position on a bike, and you know, it, it was pretty radical. But do you think? I don't know whether you were the kind of person that implemented that, but within the peloton at the same time, there were massive, there was just far more understanding about, everybody knew how important aerodynamics is because it's fundamental to bike riding, isn't it? But I think how much you could start to save in terms of numbers became very apparent and there was a real value put to that, wasn't there? So kit changed, you know, there was more thought in terms of frame design. Um, So did you kind of pretty much do that on your own or, or were you able when you were with BMC to actually kind of talk to the team and the, and the manufacturers a little bit more or, what, or was it more of a personal kind of quest that you kind of continued with? I think it was a, like a, a combination of everything really. Sometimes mm. the, the teams do pay attention, but it's like also it's, it's uh, as a rider, you know, you take sort of accountability for you, for yourself. And um, I experimented a lot with my position and eventually we did get to the wind tunnel and found that naturally I'd come to what was pretty as pretty good as we could, we could get it or at least we could find in in the time that we had. Um, So we didn't really change anything through the wind tunnel. We just, yeah, we, so um, that was almost like a confirmation, but you know, if you think about a road race, it's not that you just sat in one position, you have to move around on the bike and it's, it's also going in the wind tunnel on your road bike is almost an education because you understand um, you can test in different like positions. You can hold the drops, you can hold the hoods, you can bend your arms, you can, you're not allowed to um, do like that TT position anymore, I think. But um, yeah, stuff like that, you, you become aware of the difference and, um, and that helps you, I think, because then you can, when you're in a breakaway and you, you, you might notice someone who's constantly sat bolt upright as if he's on a club right club ride and normally yeah. that guy's way, way stronger than you, but you just know that he's putting expending X amount more than he should than he has to and then he, he, it gives you hope that in the final you can you can get him, even though he is strong because he's not he's not efficient. Yeah. And obviously and as well as the kind of aerodynamics, I think one of the things that I've I've heard you talk about is the measurement of your kind of obviously you know your kind of threshold you know your weight you know the kind of aero gains are lessened the steeper the gradient goes up but you've able to almost like whether it's subconsciously map out the best the, the optimum way to ride a climb of varying steepnesses which is something really new isn't it i mean uh, uh, it's kind of that's quite a radical way of thinking and some of the, the information i've heard about some of your t- your climbs in in Mallorca, I think it's where you you kind of beat Bradley, but Bradley put out more power. I mean, that's quite hard to get your head around, isn't it? Um, because of the way that you use the, your your engine and yeah. your your body weight and your aerodynamic position, depending on, on the gradient. And that's that's talk to me a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I mean, in the end, it's just kind of like that. You know, now not even now, but less years certainly um it's not a new thing um time trialing if you if you if you look at the profile of a course 40k and you've got like a climb and a downhill it makes more sense often to put more power down on the climb than it would do on the downhill 
possibly because you can't even pedal on the downhill or whatever. So it's just mm. trying to, if you've got 420 watts for, I don't know, 40 minutes, it's just how you sort of make that in the fastest way. It might be that it, it might be better to do 500 for five minutes and average 400, that might be faster. So it's just kind of, I used to use that, but I used to, I wasn't, I didn't use any, any, um, what do you call it? Any uh, tools or data or I just, used to feel it almost. yeah no 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 it's, yeah. that's important yeah I, I had a rough i had a rough guide and um i think it was practice you know i, I used to do these sessions where i do like a 30 minute climb and um at the end like the last k i'd kind of do it like full gas but i used to think and also when i was doing i used to do a lot of training on the flat like 30 minute like sort of mediums and um then i used to experiment with trying to go further and faster because in Italy, you know, you don't have to be like here, you got all that wind, but there, there was like not really wind and and the conditions were often very similar. So I used to try and think about, about that. I don't know. I just used to, yeah, practice. I guess I just practiced it and um, I was very aware of it. I don't know. I think that's one. I mean, I think senses like that on on the bike you honed and, and I think, you know, you never stop learning. I think even, through retirement, um, like for me, I'm obviously never reached the heights that you did as a pro, but through even retiring now and riding my bike, I think I'm far more, nowhere near as strong, but way more efficient. <laughs> it's yeah. funny, you just keep learning and the more you ride, the more you sense how to ride more efficiently. And obviously with all the years of bike racing and you always had an eye for that sort of thing, you've just honed it. And and clearly that side of things and also your ta- combined with your, your tactical prowess is is where it kind of leads us to now isn't it because you know we finally talk about you know, you're you're moving on to to the Ineos Grenadiers um yeah explain to us a little bit about how that came about Steve I know roughly because it's been in the press a little bit but I don't know in detail so how did that come about uh, I think initially uh, it was a conversation I had with Gio I went to see G after I think it was the tour in 2019 I think or it might Oh, yeah, 19, yeah, maybe, or even 20, I can't remember. And um, no, it wasn't 20 because that was last year. So it was 19. I went to see him and um, we had a conversation. I think it was about the national team, actually, and the tactics. Mm. And then didn't think anything of it. And then um, he sent me a message saying, I'll give, give Fran a ring. So I gave Fran a ring and he'd said to Fran that, like, this I idea or the way i'd explained it you know he, he liked it so she, so i gave fran a ring and then we started like a dialogue with with fran probably a year before i met fran in stuttgart once i took the overnight train to meet fran in stuttgart so wow. i chat with her she was there doing some stuff for ineos and um and then when fran left I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. And I'd always kept in touch with Dave, Dave Brailsford, always. I remember yeah. some of my, like, I remember the victory in the world. I had, I spoke to Dave some days before I was, I didn't have a great morale. And he said, Steve, don't just do what you, you do, you know, just concentrate on people will remember for you, for what you do well, not what you don't do well. So, um, I don't know, it's just things like that. So I kept, kept in touch with Dave and then, uh, he called me, when did he call me? Yeah, before Christmas, and mm. uh, invited me in. So I went into the office in Wilm. So he sent me a message saying, come in the office. And it was as loose as that. Come in the office tomorrow morning. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> I, like, right. I don't know where the office is. <laughs> so I had to, 
<laughs> I had to call someone someone else. And then I remember getting there and he was doing this speech and it, it was quite intimidating. They've got like 20, 30 people there. Like the, the um, I guess they're the, the logistics and the, the, the social media, the branding team and all that. And um, mm. sort of sat outside a bit sheepish with my mask on. <laughs> I don't know what the <laughs> protocol was with COVID and all that. And then I plugged up the courage, went in, had, had a, a meeting with him. And um, shortly after, he offered me a job. I think at first the thing was I wasn't, yeah, he wasn't sure exactly where to put to put me in what role. But um, uh, yeah, it seems to be going going good. I mean, I haven't been to a race yet, <laughs> but right. we've been doing a lot of stuff in terms of like systems and stuff like that in the background. So working with Rod and Dan Hunt and um, planning and. Um, yeah, the next step for me is yeah, get to a race. You know, we missed normally we'd we would have had Gran Canaria to camp, uh, would have gone to Bessage, and uh, then just learn the role and and build the relationships with the people because that's the most important thing, I think. Yeah, so I understand that you're going in as a as a DS, we're trainee DS because you, you're kind of learning the ropes, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, but there's another element to it because it, it you kind of strategy and tactics or something like that is that something you're going to really kind of look at as a, as a topic to try and um get the best out of the riders um well it's not just me without giving without giving too much game away i mean it just yeah. i you know i'm just interested in kind of you know yeah. what your kind of role is going to be yeah i mean that's something that was the initial that was what like going back to what we said at the start when i talked about university and writing like a race intelligence proposal i think that was the mm. that was the thing they were kind of interested in but right but um yeah, I, I guess part of that project is it's a collaborative effort and we have to understand as well that what what we're trying to do is add like a new dimension. We're not trying to take anything away because the team has been amazingly successful. We're just trying to add a new dimension when when it's intelligent to do so. You know, we're not going to race like uh, morons. Yeah. So, uh, we want to do, we want to race perhaps in a less robotic way, but, but only when it's, necessary to do so i think and and by doing that we hope that we can create like more opportunities for riders and and i think that's what is inspirational and motivational for a lot of riders they they want to keep that dream of of winning not always but you know certainly some i mean i think that's the i mean the beautiful thing about about bike racing you know you look at that peloton of 150 and 200 riders whatever it is and you, get, you know, you, there's all the variables in there. There's all the different kind of objectives and aims. There's all the different emotional, physical states. It's this this marvelous sense of kind of entropy of randomness, and um, there's never going to be a perfect formula to try and unlock it. And that's what makes what you're doing, I think, um, so kind of fascinating because it's it's a never ending quest to kind of understand the variables and try and you know look at a little bit of control and and look at and training riders how to or teaching riders how to be more instinctive and understand situations communicate them and adapt it, it is it is an absolutely fascinating subject mate isn't it i think so that's what uh that's what I'm passionate about you know and um just trying to improve certainly our team but also the sport as a whole really um yeah it is it's fascinating i mean in I, this race I'm, I, again I, i'm really trying to I, I don't want you to kind of read it out to me, but your race intelligence proposal, what did you just, just decide to do that off your own back and then pitch it? it or was it something that you were asked to do? Because I find that really quite fascinating. Yeah, no, it's a part of, uh, we had to do a research proposal 
for like a final year assignment in university and i chose to do that like racing intelligence and it's something that i've been thinking about for like years really um yeah often tactics and stuff they just don't make sense to me and um i don't think they're logical it's just like oh we do this because that's what you do and it's like well okay why (laughs) yeah why why do you do that because it's not what you're racing for you're racing for 10th or you're racing to win you know and um yeah i think that was why i started to look at it and then the, the other element is what you mentioned before is like how do you help younger riders learn how do you pass that on which is again that's a whole different subject in itself and um that's really interesting as well because it's no good like ds's because of all the experience having all the answers you want your riders on the road to have all have the answers really so so that's another side of it really but you, you must be pretty excited mate i mean after the kind of challenging year that you had last year and obviously you know financial concerns obviously because you've got to keep a roof over your head and stuff you know and you're, and you're still a relatively young man as well just to, yeah. to you know it's still 39 39 at the moment not even 40 <laughs> yeah it must be you must be i get you i bet you're kind of itching to get out and get in the team car and just and, and get cracking aren't you yeah just you want to you want to meet the people it's been it's been really tough um in that sense that you know you miss that face-to-face contact with people and and, and like i say building those relationships so I, i'm lucky in a way that i've been involved with all this process and this system stuff and perhaps i wouldn't have been involved with all that if, if uh, it had been a normal year but um so that's been good because you you get a deeper understanding you get to work with and learn from like rod dan Hunt, dave other people in the team yeah um but yeah, the key thing or the the critical thing at the moment missing for me is that um, that connection with with the race and the connection with the riders, and that's what I'm probably most passionate about the competition. I think and the 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 taste of it, you know, you know, like when you when you do the commentary and you, it's a totally different experience for me doing it in London and doing it for the, like the RCS when you're on the finish line. I I just loved it being on the finish line. I, I could do yeah. that. You know, it was fantastic. You you, you smell the race and. Um, yeah, that's what I like. I mean, I mean, final kind of. I mean, it's been Steve. It's been a really, really wonderful chat. Um, been it's like nearly an hour and ten minutes, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. But kind of fight, just linking into your kind of comms things. I do agree. I mean, I work a lot in uh, comms booths externally. Um, it's difficult to get on site at the moment, but there's nothing better really than being in a race and kind of living and breathing it whether you're kind of working for the race organizer, commentating, or obviously racing yourself. But um, when I've commentated about you in the past, I used to describe you quite a lot as a rider who understands himself more than other riders. I mean, in terms of their self-understanding. is it, was, was that fair of me to say that, that you really do kind of understand what you can do? Yeah, I think so. And that's what, yeah. and, and eventually you can impart that on the riders in, in the future because it's like fully understanding yourself. Like, this is what I can do and this is what I'm capable of. Yeah, yeah, because I, you know, in order to find that, you, you know, it's like tightening a screw. You have to tight, you have to tighten the screw so far, and sometimes it snaps. Well, I snapped the screw, like I don't know, a hundred times before I found like that's enough. That that's enough. Yeah. And um, and I couldn't, I couldn't, I literally can say at the end of my career, I don't feel like I could have done any more. I did did everything I could do, and um, in the end, I, I was happy. So. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say I'd, by the end I knew myself really well, yeah. What I could do, what I couldn't do, and what maybe what sometimes, you know, that 
feeling in the race, that bit of grit, that bit of uh, extra buzz can lift you a little bit higher, but uh, like within a ballpark, you know, you don't, you're not suddenly going to go from uh, hero to zero. There's always a ballpark of, yeah, I was optimistic. Yeah, maybe I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's give it a try. I've got nothing to lose. So I was always in that mindset, but uh, there's certain things like I knew, like I can't do that. It's not, uh, it's not for me to do. And I think that was perhaps why I was like seeing, you know, like quite black and white in that sense. But uh, there's so many other factors in why I was like that as well, like in terms of what team I was in, in terms of the strategy of the team, and all that stuff. You know? Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, yeah. One chapter closes, mate. A nice tra- a transitional year of twenty twenty, and a, and a new one begins. And I w- just want to wish you all the best. And hopefully, I'll see you on the road, Steve, at some point. Or hopefully, we can get out with braking and racing. And hopefully, hopefully, when lockdown eases a bit, we can get out for another bike ride, mate. Because um, it was a pleasure last time. And it's um, it's uh, it's been lovely to talk to you, mate. And uh, just finally, uh, we've sewn together those um, single word descriptions of the teams you've been in. Uh, and Niall has kindly written them down. Um, here it is. Traditional best Italian marginal American downhill team. Lovely. <laughs> That's it. What, what a great little sentence. What a great little <laughs> sentence, mate. <laughs> Good stuff, mate. Well, it's been, it's, been a, it's been a real laugh, sort of taking a stroll down memory lane, looking to the future. All the best, mate, with uh, your future plans. And, um, yeah, it's good to see hear you laughing and good to hear you happy, mate. And um, take care and catch up with you very soon. And thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Well, that was absolutely wonderful. Steve is a real gent and it's always a pleasure talking to him, especially at length like that. I hope you enjoyed it. I thought that was a real treat. And all the best to Steve in the future. And hopefully one day we'll maybe get him back on the pod to see how he's doing. And if it doesn't work out, he's always got his treehouse building handyman skills to fall back on. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth, as ever, for the podcast theme tune. And thanks to you for listening. It really is utterly fantastic how many ears this pod reaches. Uh, don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod. That way, more people like you will actually get to find our pod and why not recommend it to your cycling buddies or to an under-equipped junior who's faked a puncture just to get a better wheel from the support vehicle, if you see one. And finally, a huge thanks again to Steve for joining me from his massive shed today. Thanks all, goodbye, and stay safe. Thank you.